Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Brent. Great to see all of you here. Thank you for being here this morning to celebrate baptisms with us. Baptism Sundays are always great Sundays. We always love to be able to celebrate what God's doing uh, in the lives of our people. And baptism, of course, is one of those great moments uh, that is, uh, is unique in this process. And so thank you for being here. If you're a friend or family of somebody who was baptized here this morning and you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. Thank you for being here to support them. And, uh, and we're going to continue this morning into a series that we started last week in looking at the parables of Jesus. And if you're not familiar with what the parables of Jesus are, the parables of Jesus are simply the stories and the illustrations and the metaphors that Jesus often taught with during his earthly ministry uh, to teach us about, in particular, a few things. We talked last week about why Jesus taught, about, uh, taught in parables, what parables are all about. And in fact, at one point in Jesus' ministry, his disciples came to him and asked him, why is it that you teach in parables? And so we saw right from Jesus' right from Jesus' answer last week a couple of the reasons that he teaches from parables. One, that Jesus taught from parables so that he could tell us about what he called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And as we talked about last week, the kingdom of heaven is at least a few things as Jesus teaches through the parables. He tells us that it is about the reign and the presence of God in this world. And that that reign and presence of God, although one day in eternity, will be everywhere throughout all creation, we only see it in parts right now in this world. So it is already in some ways, but it also is not yet. So we're waiting for some things to happen, notably when Jesus comes back again. But when Jesus came the first time, he was also announcing through the parables the fact that the kingdom was available to anyone who wanted to respond. And so these parables go out as an invitation to anyone who would listen, an invitation to be a part of the kingdom and to join the kingdom that Jesus was announcing. And as he's announcing the parables, one of the things that Jesus is saying to everyone who, is he, who would hear is that he's bringing the message of the kingdom as this new world, this new reality breaking into the current world that we live in. And so the parables, whether they, no matter whether they are a longer story or they're just a short one-liner, we see all different types of parables that Jesus teaches with. What they hold in common is that their meaning is not necessarily just right there on the surface. That these stories and these images and these metaphors are designed to draw us into the story or the metaphor. To ask the question of what is the understanding that Jesus is inviting us to engage in. And so as he does that, he calls us to embrace these things by faith. And as Jesus presented to us last week from the parable of the sower, we saw that, the first of many parables that Jesus teaches with, he talked about that the word as his kingdom goes out like seed into a field. And it falls upon four different soils, which are the four different types of hearts that, of those who would hear his kingdom message. And that as a result, that those soils produce four different types of results. And of course, the one that bears fruit, the one that counts, the one that is alive, is the one that seeks understanding by faith in God. And it's such a key aspect to understanding what the kingdom is all about is understanding by faith. And so as we dive more into the kingdom perspective this morning, we're going to look at a few more of Jesus' parables, a little shorter than the one that we looked at last week. But faith, again, is going to be an important topic for today. And as the parable of the sower set up for us last week, there are really two kinds of faith, or we should probably say two sides of the same coin of faith in God. The faith that brings us to God, and then the faith that endures, that keeps us walking with God and walking with Jesus. In kingdom language, we would say it's the faith that allows us to enter the kingdom, and then the faith that allows us to live from the kingdom and in the kingdom, even as people who live in this world. 
Now, it's that second kind of faith that Jesus is going to pick up on with today's parables. In other words, what does that faith look like that endures, that keeps us following Jesus, that keeps us living from the kingdom, even when we live in a world where it seems like the kingdom is not everywhere we go? In fact, in some cases, it seems like the kingdom is not anywhere we go. So how do we live from the kingdom reality that Jesus presents us with? How do we live in that faith, in that way, day to day? Not being able to see what we honestly want to see. I think as Christ followers, we want to be able to see the presence and the reign of God everywhere we go. But we know that that's not our reality as we live in this world day to day. So how do we continue in the faith in that way? Not being able to see all that we want to see. And I think it's at this point that faith has to be joined with another fruit of the Spirit from the Scripture, and that's patience. And I know that even saying the word patience makes some of us a little bit nervous and uneasy as you realize you might not be a very patient person. I have a friend of mine who always tells me, never pray for patience for me, right? Because he's one of the most, he'll admit this, he's one of the most impatient people that he knows, but he knows also that when, when, when God puts him through times where God works patience into his life, those times can often be painful and difficult, and he's experienced that several times in his life. So he always tells me, don't ever pray for patience for me. But at the same time, I do think that patience might be one of the most difficult fruits of the Spirit to cultivate. By a show of hands, who here struggles with being patient? You struggle with being patient? I'll be patient and wait for the rest of you to wait, raise your hands. Keep your hands up. Because <laughs> the reality is that all of us struggle with patience. It's a very difficult thing to cultivate, and we're going to talk about a little later why that is, but essentially it's not a part of our nature. But patience is a primary characteristic of God's nature. Did you know that? We're told in Scripture, all the way throughout Scripture, you see this highlighting of God's patience. If you read through the Old Testament over and over again, we're told that God is long-suffering. Long-suffering is kind of like a biblical way, an old biblical way of saying patient. When we're told that God is faithful to us, even when we're not faithful, that's patience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we know is the love chapter, you may not be familiar with the Bible, but you've probably heard this chapter read at weddings where, it's, where Paul talks about what love is. What is the first characteristic of love that he talks about? Love is patient, right? You know this, love is patient, love is kind. And so in order to love well, we have to be patient as well. In order to love God, in order to love people well, we have to be patient. It's at the root of what that means. And so as we engage with these next parables today, we're going to look at three of them. They're shorter than the one that we looked at last week, but they're substantial in their own way. We're going to talk about how Jesus presents to us godly patience, kingdom patience, which is a little bit different than how we might typically understand patience in our world, I think. And so in many ways, and so he invites us to embrace and cultivate that kind of patience that only he can give us. And look, this morning as I stand up here, in many ways I'm the last person that should be talking to you about patience. I'm one of the most impatient people that I know. Um, I, I will gladly pay for whatever, whatever amount of money it takes to buy a fast pass at a theme park. I will gladly pay that. You can charge me however much money you want. I will always buy that fast pass because I can't stand waiting in line. I, as I was thinking about patience this week, God was bringing up certain situations and it was kind of on my mind. And so I was, I was even more aware of how impatient I am as I was standing in the Starbucks line this week. As I was driving through the construction traffic, like they're tearing up all kinds of roads around Scottsdale Airport. I don't know if you noticed that, but I definitely noticed it because I was sitting in the traffic and I was so impatient just trying to get through it, right? As, as, as we deal with people from time to time that may take a little bit of extra patience, whether that's our kids or 
other people around us at work or wherever it may be, right? We see these opportunities, these times where God calls to mind that we are actually, in fact, very impatient. I saw that happening this week. So again, I feel like I should be the last person to be talking with you about patience this morning, but the good news about relying on God's word is that this is not my TED Talk on patience this morning. This is about going to what Jesus has to tell us about what patience is all about. And so I've gone through this, I've wrestled with this all week, but I'm ready to get back into it again because I need to hear this again. I hope that you need to hear it as well. And as we get to it, we're going to work through it together. And so as we look at these parables today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 again, just like we were last week. We're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 24. So you could turn in your Bibles or uh, app, Bible app. We're going to have the scripture up on the screen as well. But as we look at these parables today, one thing we need to remember is that we are in the middle of a certain setting that Matthew has laid out for us. Now the gospel writers, and we should know this about every gospel writer, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, each one of the gospel writers are writing a story to us, a narrative from beginning to end. Their stories are about the ministry of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom, among other things. And just like any other story, there's connective tissue that goes on within their story and their narrative. So they're trying to connect one scene or one setting to another. When we get to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew lets us know exactly what this setting is all about. We talked about this last week, but at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he has kind of gotten some kind of notoriety and popularity. We know this because crowds of people at this point have begun following Jesus wherever he goes. So he's with his disciples, but he's also so popular that these crowds are following him everywhere. And he gets back to the place of the shore of the Sea of Galilee where he's staying in a home there, and the crowds have even followed him basically to his front doorstep. And so he gets out in a boat and kind of moves himself a little bit away from the shore to create some distance between him and the crowds, and his disciples are there with him in the boat. Now, we talked about last week, but the reality is he's setting up a physical distance between him and the crowds, but he's not so far away that they can't hear his teaching. Like, he's probably just a few yards out into the, uh, into the shoreline there. And the crowds are gathered at the shore, and he's teaching these parables, and what he does is he creates two different audiences for his teaching. There's a public audience, which is where he teaches the parables to the crowds and the disciples who are in the boat. And then there's, a time, then there's times where Jesus turns to his disciples and just offers them private teaching. Usually has to do with, like last week, we saw him interpret one of his parables just for his disciples. We're going to see that same thing happen here today as we continue in Matthew chapter 13. There's a public teaching, which is the first part of what we're looking at. And then the second part that we're going to read and look at is Jesus' private teaching to the disciples And we'll see how that changes things as well, okay? So with that being said, we're in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24, and we're going to begin, uh, verse 24, we're going to continue through 35 in this first part. And it says this, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came in and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Why then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go up to gather them? And he said, No. Lest in the gathering of the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let's let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when, it was, when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and even becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and make its nest on its branches. And he told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like, a, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Okay, so although we've talked a little bit about the fact that Jesus has different audiences in front of him, right? The crowds versus the disciples who are actually following him. There's a distinction there as well as far as their relationship with Jesus. Uh, In reality, they probably had very similar questions and concerns, both the disciples and the crowds, about the nature of the kingdom of God. After all, they had certain expectations. Most of them were Jewish in their background, and so they knew the Old Testament. They knew the promises of the king who would come in the line of David. They knew that God promised that this kingdom would come. But at the same time, when Jesus comes on the scene and announces the kingdom of God, some of them might have been confused, concerned, maybe a little bit disillusioned by Jesus' presentation of the kingdom. Because their questions would have been something like, if this is really the kingdom of God, shouldn't it be bigger? I mean, shouldn't it be more visible? An itinerant teacher who's teaching from from a backwoods town with 12 guys he just picked up off the street? This doesn't seem like much of a kingdom. This doesn't seem like a kingdom that can defeat any other kingdom on earth, much less the big, bad Roman Empire that we're being oppressed by. And I know this is certainly the objection of the religious leaders. They looked at Jesus' ministry and saw nothing special. The king of David? This guy is not the king of David. The crowds, too, probably just saw Jesus as a miracle worker and a teacher. And when he talked about himself as the king or as a Messiah and the kingdom of God, they probably either thought he was confused or thought he was, or thought he was exaggerating. Now that doesn't look, because none of this looked like the kingdom of God. I think even the disciples had moments of doubt. We talked about Judas last week. There was a point in Judas' following of Jesus where he decided, you know, this agenda that Jesus is presenting to us doesn't really fit with what I expected it to be, which led to his rebellion, which led to, to him betraying Jesus in the end. I think the disciples worried about this as well. If this is the kingdom of God and this is his Messiah, then this is supposed to overthrow evil and injustice and oppression. And it should be doing that now. So they should be def- we should be defeating the evil Romans who are oppressing us and who are causing injustice and who are the ones who are enslaving us. God's Messiah has to be the one to do that, right? I mean, he can't look at this obvious evil and brokenness in the world and not do anything about it. Now, in many ways, I think you can't blame the crowds for thinking this way. We spent some time in our Revelation series talking about the evils of the Roman Empire. But the Romans were notorious for being bloodthirsty and greedy and sexually immoral and unjust and spiritual idolaters. They were notorious for enslaving and oppressing people, which they were doing uh, to the Israelites at the time. They had done to the Jews, they did this to the Jews, and then they did this to the church in the first century as well. And so if evil had a name during this time, during Jesus' ministry and during the first century church, if evil had a name, one of those names had to be Rome. And Jesus knew this about Rome. He knew this about the crowds and the disciples, what they wanted. He was perceptive about human nature, and he knew what was going on in their hearts and actually what they expressed to him. But he also knew that their desires were not within the will of God for his kingdom. Truly, his kingdom was not of this world, and Jesus was not presenting himself as that type of king. Out of his care and concern for, his peop- for the people, though, especially for the disciples, he doesn't give them expectations that they would expect, but instead changes their expectations by inviting them to engage in the true kingdom of God so that they can align their expectations with the will of God and what God is doing. And he does that by telling them the parables of the nature of the kingdom of God. That's where this falls into. 
So first he tells the parable known as the wheat and the weeds. And this is done to respond to that concern about why God would allow evil to continue even with his kingdom in this world. Why would, why would God allow uh, the Romans to continue to get away with all the evil that they are doing without any kind of punishment? Where is God's justice? Where are God's fulfilled promises of a kingdom that would deliver his people from evil and oppression? Then he tells a parable known as the parable of the mustard seed. It's a short parable, but it responds to the question and concern that many had about the fact that Jesus' kingdom seems so small and insignificant. The objection here would be, if, again, if this is the kingdom of heaven, shouldn't it be bigger? Shouldn't it be more significant? And even though there are crowds following Jesus at this point and a small band of disciples following, that doesn't seem like a kingdom of any significance or power, right? Again, a teacher who's going from town to town with 12 unemployed young men doesn't look like any, any makings or beginnings of a significant kingdom. And then finally, Jesus tells a parable known as the parable of the leaven. It's another short parable, one of those two-liners, but this one responds to the question of why the kingdom isn't as outwardly visible and effective as some had expected it to be. After all, humans expect kingdoms to have things like palaces and land and boundaries and impressive buildings and statues and treasuries full of gold and a king who is strong politically and with a military might of an army that backs him up that can protect the kingdom from our enemies that come against us. I mentioned that each of these parables answer those questions about the kingdom. We're going to get to Jesus' explanation. I said last week that there are 40 different parables or so that we see in the Gospels, and only two of them get an explanation from Jesus. We saw the first one last week. We're going to see the second one right now as we continue reading in Matthew chapter 13. And as Jesus explains the parable, of, he's going to explain one of the parables, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, but as he gives us this understanding, this perspective, it's going to help us to understand the other two as well, because it all falls within that same uh, understanding. They're all connected. So in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus responds with all those questions in mind, all those concerns in mind. Verse 36, this is how he explains it to his disciples. It says, Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parables of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the evil and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the, is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Now just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now again, with this explanation of the parable of the weeds, Jesus switches from the public audience back to the private audience. At this point, he's gotten out of the boat. His disciples have followed him into a house that's there uh, somewhere close to the shoreline, and they've left the crowds behind. And as they get into the house, the disciples approach Jesus again and, tell, and ask him, tell us the meaning of that parable of the weed and the weeds that you just told. And Jesus, as he describes all of this, he begins to answer these questions more directly that the disciples and the crowds had in mind. First, as he describes the parable of the weeds, he says the question of why the kingdom could still exist, how the kingdom could still exist and there could still be evil in the world is for this reason. Again, using, a, using the similar kind of sower and seed imagery from the previous parable, Jesus is the sower and his seed goes out as the word of the kingdom to anyone who would receive him. 
Now the focus is not necessarily on the soil this time, but it's on the fruit or the crop that comes out. And he says there are two types of crop that come out in this case. The wheat, which is full of the grain and the fruit and everything that the far farmer wants and needs. And then the weeds that grow up alongside the wheat as well. And these, these two different crops, or these two different plants, if you will, represent two different types of people. The wheat with the fruit in it, with the life and the fruit in it that's valuable to the farmer, represents the sons of the kingdom. Those are the ones who are truly followers of Jesus. Those are the ones who entered the kingdom by faith. Those are the ones who follow Jesus by faith as well. The other are the weeds. The weeds are the ones that have been planted by, as Jesus says, the evil one, the devil. They are the sons of the evil one, the ones who are outside of the kingdom of God. And he says that in all of this, the weeds and the plants grow together. The field is the world. And so there is evil and good coexisting right now in the current world that we are a part of, which we are well aware of. It's a presentation of the world that we all deal with and have dealt with since the beginning. There's both good and evil in the world. But as he says, in the end, the parable ends with a harvest time, which is a reference to final judgment, a time when the wheat and the weeds will be dealt with. They'll be harvested and they'll be put in their appropriate places. For the weeds, that means that they'll be taken and burned up in a fire, representative of judgment, representative of hell. It's, it's burning where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then there is another destiny and final judgment for those who are sons of the kingdom. They're the wheat that is gathered into the barn of the farmer to be with their father in this glorious reality of new creation. Now in this parable then, Jesus provides the answer to why the kingdom doesn't overthrow all the evil in the world now and allows evil people and evil kingdoms and evil things to exist and even sometimes to persecute his people. It's not that God doesn't see the difference between good and evil. It's not that God doesn't recognize his people and recognize the evil that's being done to them. It's not that God doesn't recognize the things that we face in this world that are broken and difficult and burdensome. And it's not that God isn't, isn't just and won't do something about it. It's all about timing. As Jesus says, look, it will happen. Evil will be judged, and it will be judged completely. Just not now and not until God decides it will happen. Now, the remaining two shorter parables can then be framed within this explanation here. Like the kingdom of God, the mustard seed starts out small and insignificant in this world, at least in this world. You know, it started out with Jesus' ministry with a small band of followers who followed him. And even by the end of Jesus' ministry, there was still really just a small band of followers, maybe a hundred people or less. By the time Jesus rose from the dead and during his ascension, by the time Pentecost hits, which is the start of the, of the church, of the New Testament church, there's about 100 people gathered in that upper room, which we're meant to understand is the beginning of the church. Not a lot of people, when you think about it. It starts small, but from 100 people, that becomes thousands in the early church. Then it becomes tens of thousands. Then it becomes millions. And over the past 2,000 years, billions of people have been a part of the church of Jesus over the past 2,000 years. But look, this metaphor is not just about, uh, the, the mustard seed is not just about the numbers of people who are Christians. It's, always about the, it's also about the nature of the kingdom of God, which is that wherever it starts, it often starts small, and it grows over time. But in terms of its power and influence in our lives and in the world, it starts slow, but it miraculously ends and cannot be stopped as far as its impact miraculously from beginning to end. And by the end, it grows so miraculously that it looks nothing like. It's unrecognizable in terms of what it began as. The smallest of all seeds, yet it becomes a tree in the end. 
All of which brings us to the third parable. And this one is all about the hidden nature of the kingdom. Notice in this parable that Jesus says the woman hid the leaven in the dough. And this was in reference to a common practice at the time where someone would take fermented dough from a previous batch of dough and then place it in a new batch of dough so that that dough could be fermented and it would take usually probably a day or so for that to happen. Um, and, and the leaven would be mixed in the dough and the leaven had kind of a, a living organism in it so that it would grow progressively throughout the dough and impact the entire dough to where it got to a place where it became bread. The point here is made as similar to the mustard seed in terms of the size of the leaven and what it ends up being in the end. In the parable, the small piece of leaven ferments what Jesus says is three measures of flour. Three measures of flour and what's produced there was enough to feed over a hundred people. So notice again the comparison between how it starts off. It starts out small, but it's designed to impact everything into a place miraculously that it looks completely different than how it started. And of course, as we understand this, the kingdom of God becomes so influential in the end and by eternity that it covers all creation for all of eternity. So the crowds and the disciples who were expecting certain things from the kingdom, when they were expecting these things, notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples or the crowds for wanting evil to be defeated or for wanting a powerful king with a powerful kingdom. In fact, he actually seems to affirm that. As in each case with the parables, that's exactly what happens. Evil is judged, justice comes in the end with the harvest, and then there's a strong, powerful kingdom represented by this powerful tree where the birds even come to nest in its branches, and this dough that is impacting everything around it that feeds eight, uh, over 100 people. But what, he turns, what Jesus turns their attention to instead, though, is the nature of the kingdom. That truly God's kingdom operates on God's timing and according to God's purposes and by God's power. And in that world, and in, again, in this world, the kingdom is not plainly seen. Instead, it's often deliberately hidden for those who would seek it out by faith. Now, with that in mind, the disciples aren't told to get to work to build the kingdom so it can be what God wants to be. Instead, what, he's, what they are told is to stay faithful and to be patient. To seek the kingdom through understanding faith and to wait for God to do what he's going to do. And it's the same thing for us today. Stay faithful to Jesus and be patient. And what does that mean? What does that look like for us? Let's talk about that for a minute. As, Jesus, as we bring Jesus' teaching here to a modern-day setting, we might realize that this teaching is still really relevant for us today. Right? Many of the same questions and doubts that are, were present 2,000 years ago about the kingdom of God still exist in our world today, maybe even still exist among us. Uh, who are following Jesus. In some ways, the doubts are even more pronounced and widespread. Even through 2,000 years of church history has brought billions of people into the faith. At the same time, it seems that as, even as the church grows, evil grows around us even more so. The things that we can look at in our world are so long, uh, there's such a long list at this point where we can point to the evil things and the broken things that are happening all around us. It's heartbreaking. And the tragedies that happen in the world around us are one thing, where we see how evil runs rampant in our world. Injustice and violence is happening everywhere. But it's not only that, but the personal tragedies that we face in our individual lives. In many ways, we're in the same situation that the disciples were in that house 2,000 years ago with Jesus, asking about the weeds in the fields that we see everywhere. Why is it that evil exists and continues to break the world around us? God, don't you see this? What are you going to do about it? But when we say remain faithful and patient, we all realize that that's a lot easier said than done. Again, as my 
friend that I mentioned earlier realized, patience can be really difficult for us to live out. Because the problem with patience is really twofold. It's not in our, in our nature. It's in God's nature, but it's not in our human fallen nature to just naturally be patient. It's also, we're also not helped by the world that we live in. I don't know if you've noticed this, but almost everything that we invent, almost everything that we come up with is designed to allow us not to have to be patient. You realize that? I mean, think about this. We, we, could also, we could say it this way. As human beings, we worked really hard and spent a lot of time and money developing a world in such a way that we have to rely on patience as little as possible. Cell phones in our pockets, um, all kinds of things at our fingertips at all times. And so whatever patience we may have, we never have to end up using it. And kind of like an unused muscle, it begins to atrophy and it begins to get weak. You know, generationally, I am what is called a zenial. You guys heard of Xennials before? If you've never heard of a Xennial before, it's because we are kind of like this secret mutant race of people, <laughs> kind of like X-Men or something that have special abilities. Really, really, it's not, it, really what all it means to be a Xennial is that you happen to be born during a six-year gap between gen, when Generation X ended and the millennial generation began, right? And that transitional period, that six-year period, specifically by sociologists, if you can't see on the graph there, is uh, somewhere from the year 1977 to the year 1983. So if you were born in that six-year gap, you're classified as a Xennial. Just out of curiosity, how many Xennials do we have here this morning? Got a few, almost, almost, well, probably a quarter of us are Xennials. But the reason I bring this up is that according to sociologists, one of the defining characteristics of a Xennial is that Xennials experienced an analog childhood and a digital adulthood which essentially means that we grew up alongside the technological revolution that's happened over the past 40 years. That as, a tech, as technology came to age, specifically the internet and cell phones, we were coming to age as well. So that we lived a childhood without those things, and then now as adults, we can't live without them, is really what it looks like, right? And so as Xennials, we know what it's like to, be, to, to live, a, live a childhood where you, know, you could wait for things, and you didn't have to have everything right in front of you, and now we live as adults in a, in a reality where having it right now is already too late. And there is some debate about what effects this might have on people, but just for one, think about it this way. I think, I think this tells a story. If internet and cell phones were to end right now, what would happen to the world that we live in? They were just to end, like right now. No more internet, no more cell phones. The way that we are right now, dependent on them the way that we are, what do you think would happen? I think our society would collapse. I think within 10 minutes, it'd be Lord of the Flies all over this earth. That's how dependent we've become on internet and cell phones and technology. Most Xennials have significant experiences in the pre-technological revolution that had a semblance of kind of delayed gratification. But of course, now all of us are just like everybody else, completely dependent upon the technology that's in our pockets. And I would say this, as I look at my own life, I can see, I, I totally resonate with this. I was born in November 1979, which is almost smack dab in the middle of that six-year period. And I completely resonate with this. This was my life, analog childhood, and then once the internet and cell phones hit, I was an early adopter, bought in full scale, and I was, I was all the way in to the point where I'm probably more as, as addicted to these things as anybody is. But for those Xennials or those who are older, I mean, remember things like dial-up internet? It's unimaginable right now. 15 years ago, I was in Africa, and they had dial-up internet, and I almost went nuts, because I'm like, and this was 15 years ago in Africa on a mission trip, I'm like, dial-up internet, who still has that, right? 
Remember text messaging where you only had like the 10 number key because you had a flip phone and you had to go through like three or four letters at a time just to land on the right letter? And God forbid you overshoot that letter? Take you a half an hour to send one sentence through text message. Of course, we now have streaming music apps that play any song you want at any time. If you can just name the song, you can pull it out of your phone, you can pull it out on your phone and listen to it at any time. Do you remember what streaming music was like when we were kids, like back in the 80s and 90s? Streaming music was basically plugging the cassette, putting the cassette tape in so that you could record the song that came on the radio <laughs> right when it came on, right? And you usually get the radio DJ's voice over the first like 15 seconds of it. That was streaming music for us. Of course, one of the biggest changes though is how we watch and consume TV. You remember there was a time, some of you who are younger may not know this, but there was a time where if you missed a live TV show, you just missed it. You couldn't stream it afterwards. There was no DVR. There was no TiVo. I remember when TiVo was invented. It was like one of the greatest inventions ever. I remember I had a TiVo for the first time, and I remember pausing live TV. You could pause live TV. I remember pausing live TV, and I actually said this out loud. I just stopped time. <laughs> I, I felt like, like, you know, like Thanos with the, with the Infinity Stones right in the middle of that remote control. It was such an empowering, amazing thing. Because before TiVo and before streaming, if you missed a show, you just missed a show, maybe forever. At the very least, you could, you could wait for it to be shown on TBS in a rerun maybe in a couple years after the next presidential election or something like that. And that was patience. Now, in terms of technology, we've come a long ways, and it seems that we've been motivated by one thing throughout the whole thing, not having to wait, not having to be patient. I think it just shows how much... Patience is not in our nature and how little patience we actually have in the modern world. It was said a long time ago that patience is a virtue. I'm not sure that that's actually true in the modern world anymore. But what I can tell you is that patience is a fruit of the Spirit for those who follow Jesus. And here are a handful of things as we close this morning that I want to leave us with about cultivating godly patience, about why patience is important, and about why God wants us to have patience as a gift. First of all, patience releases us from the need to be in control. I think we've all been in this position before, right? In a place where we try to wrestle control from God because things aren't happening the way that we want them to or they're not happening in the time frame that we want them to happen. And sometimes that's just everyday things like waiting in Starbucks or getting trapped in construction traffic or dealing with a person that requires a little bit more patience. But sometimes it's a lot more serious than that. Sometimes we face a difficult situation that's literally life and death, and it's completely out of our control, where we have to rely on God solely to move, and we realize that he hasn't moved in the way or in the timing that we want him to. That'll try our patience. And for some of us, maybe we're in that waiting period right now, not sure whether we'll ever see the outcomes that we want in this life and in the timing we'd like to see them. So what do we do with all that when we face it? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark about this. He knows that this is a real struggle, and again, he tells us the truth about this all because he cares for us and he loves us. And what he tells us is that patience is not just about waiting. When Jesus tells these parables to the disciples, he doesn't just say to them, just be better at waiting, right? Things will happen on their own time. Just be better at being people who wait a little bit better. He is saying more than that. He is telling them, that they have to give up the need to have control. And he is saying the way you do that is that you trust God. Specifically to trust God and to keep trusting God until you can rest in the ways that God is going to bring that outcome and in the timing in which he's going to bring the outcome as well. This is not about doing more. It's not about waiting. It's actually about resting. It's not about doing more. It's actually about resting in what God 
is going to do. And that's really the essence of patience. Not that you can wait longer so that makes you more patient, but that you can rest in God's outcomes, which then allow you to wait. And that doesn't make patience any easier all the time, but it does remind us that our patience is not in vain. And that if we can trust God's with, God with the outcomes, we can also trust him with the timing of those outcomes as well. So patience releases us to, from the need to be controlled. Secondly, because of that, patience brings us peace. You know, as a human being, I'm convinced that there are few things that are more freeing than being able to give up the need to have control. I mean, think about it for a moment. I thought about this a lot this past week as I was thinking about patience. How much of our thought life how much of our energy, how much of our emotions are spent trying to control things that in the end are really out of our control in the first place? Right? Think about that. Think about that. There is nothing worse than thinking that you can control something that you have no control over the outcome. I'm sure we've all been there, right? And it's frustrating because you're setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. And this is one of the reasons why God tells us to have patience. Because he realizes that he is God and we are not. And although we often forget that, God never forgets that. And he reminds us of that from time to time. I am God and you are not. Trust my outcomes and trust my timing. Because what we end up doing, if we don't, is beating our heads against the wall when we try to convince ourselves that we can control something that we could never control in the first place. And so patience is absolutely necessary to live out the fruit of, of the peace of God in our lives. Without patience, we're always at war with ourselves and with the world around us and even with God because inevitably things will happen that God plans out and that God brings to bear in your life that you didn't plan for, that you didn't want, and in some ways that you didn't, uh, and in a lot of ways that you didn't plan for as far as the timing goes. And God invites us to have patience and to wait and rest in the outcomes and remember that he is God. And the more that we can believe that, the more at peace we will be because we'll find ourselves aligned with God's will and be content with the fact that we are in God's will. Third, patience is a process. You know, we just mentioned a few minutes ago how difficult it can be to actually be patient people because it's not in our nature and everything around us is working against us. I think in a lot of ways, not only is patient no longer, patience no longer a virtue in our world, it's actually a virtue to be impatient in a lot of ways. You get rewarded by, by not being patient in the world that you live in. In the kingdom, it's very different. In fact, it's opposite in many ways. And the most difficult part about godly patience, though, is that it is a process, and it can often be a painful process. If you're like my friend or you're like myself, when God works patience into your life, he is replacing some very core things that you rely on, which is your own impatience and your own need to have control. And that's a painful thing. It hurts. But in the end, it's totally worth it. And it's worth it because what we're talking about is not just any kind of patience that God gives us, but the very patience that Jesus had who was the most patient man, most patient human being who ever lived. I mean, think about this. Think about all Jesus faced in his ministry. He was constantly at threat with, with religious leaders who were trying to kill him and trying to destroy him. He had crowds who were so fickle, they were just telling him, hey, perform more miracles for us. Do more, do more stuff. This is great. Pressing against him all the time, even his disciples, right? Constant agendas and backfighting and, 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 and asking questions of the things that he just taught about, showing him, showing him that they weren't listening at all in the first place. And he was patient through all of it. And look, at the same time, that's nothing compared to how patient Jesus is with me and you. The constant wandering of our hearts and turning away from him, yet he is always patient with us. Wouldn't you like to just have a small piece of that patience? This is what is being offered to us in the kingdom. This is, a part of where, this is also the part where we can really engage, though. 
And the process of cultivating patience often starts with just recognizing where you are impatient. Maybe it is at the Starbucks line. Maybe it is driving around in traffic where you feel that sense of impatience. And in that time, it's a perfect time to repent, which in this case just means to turn back from the impatient self who gets annoyed and frustrated and angry and to turn to accept God's gift of patience. It's saying I want to exchange my impatient self that's always at war with the things that I can't control and exchange it for the fruit of trusting in God's outcomes in the end. And finally, patience reorients our lives. When patience has full effect in our lives, it totally reorients everything for us. Now, I don't know what what, uh, image comes to mind when you think of a patient person. I think for most of us, we probably think of somebody who's kind of sitting in the corner with his hands folded, very passive, just kind of allowing things to happen, maybe even apathetic about what's going on around him. Patience in the Bible is not like that. It's not passive, and it's not inactive. Again, Jesus was the most patient person who ever lived. I don't think we would say that Jesus was passive or inactive in the way that he lives. But what patience does is it allows us to act where we need to act and then allows God to do what only God can do. This is why it's important to remember that patience starts with being faithful. Faith implies that we are actively following Jesus and living out the kingdom life in the world. Remember, James says, faith without works is dead. Faith requires that we would live out our faith and that there would be works being done. But patience puts faithful action in the right perspective. Faithful action might share the gospel, but patience allows God to do the saving. Faithful action works against evil in the world, where it exists and where we see it, which we are definitely called to do. But in the end, patience also allows God to bring transformation and judgment in his own timing and in his own way. Faithful action repents of sin, but patience allows God to bring life change through that. The bottom line is that faith and patience together both recognizes our calling in actively following Jesus and being the body of Christ on mission, but also embraces our limits and allows God to be God. Let me just finish by saying this. Patience is still a virtue, and it will always be a virtue, because patience is, is part of the eternal characteristics of God. It will be part of the eternal characteristics of all who are gathered into the barn on the final judgment day as well. And when godly patience has its full effect, it changes us from frustrated and angry and insecure and fearful people into people who are confident and peaceful and loving and full of faith because we can rest in God's outcomes. Part of the good news of the kingdom is that Christ is in you, and that means that Jesus wants to give you his patience for your own good and for his glory. And he does it because he knows you and because he loves you and because he cares for you. Now, do you know what I do when my friend tells me not to pray for patience for him? I do it anyway, because he needs it. Trust me, if you know him, you know he needs it. Some of you do know him in this room. It's good for him. It might be what he, it's exactly what he needs, even though it's temporarily painful. And so I'm going to do the same thing for all of us here in this room that I do for my friend when he tells me not to pray for patience. I'm going to pray that God would bring a fruit of patience in our lives and that we'd see it more evidently this week. So let's do that. Would you join me? Lord, we are praying, coming to you, uh, knowing that patience is a good thing. It's a part of your character, and so it's a good thing just because of that, but it's for all these reasons we've talked about and even more. It's a good thing for us. Lord, we know that you give it to us for our good and for your glory, and so we want to see your goodness shine through our lives. Would you be glorified by transforming our hearts and our lives and making us more patient? giving us the wisdom and the faith to be able to see where we are struggling in that area. 
And Lord, allowing us the faith to trust you and your grace and your power in changing us and transforming us. Lord, you hide no part of yourself from us. You want, us to, you, you want uh, us to know you just as you fully know us. And so one of the things that we need to know about you is that you are patient. And as we understand what that means in our lives, we get to know a little bit more about who you are and what your kingdom is all about, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And so, Lord, we do pray for patience, whatever that takes for all of us here in this room. And uh, for those of us who are joining, uh, who are joining um, in that prayer we ask you, Lord, that you would show us the fruit of patience in our lives. And we know that it may hurt at times to change and to be transformed and to come to a place where we realize that we've been impatient with our spouse or with our kids. Or we've been angry and frustrated, not because of things that are going on around us, but things that are happening in our own hearts. That can be a painful lesson to learn. It's pride swallowing, it's humbling. But Lord, in the end, we know that you teach us those lessons because you love us and it's for our own good. And so would you bring transformation and the fruit of your patience in our lives in the way that only you can? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you all again for being here with us this week. I want to let you know we do this every Sunday at 10 a.m. And so join us next week. Make plans to join us next week. And we spent a lot of time talking about the one side of the coin of faith, which is following Jesus faithfully in this world after we've come to faith in him. But there's another side of that faith coin, and it begins with our journey with Jesus, our interest into the kingdom. And so if you have questions about what that means, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus for the first time to come into his kingdom, we want to talk to you about that. Come find one of us. We have our prayer partners, the Comstocks, who are ready to talk with you or pray with you about that as well. Um, we have prayer cards in the back. As you leave here this morning, that table with the cross has prayer cards on it. If you fill out one of those prayer request cards, you can drop it in our offering stands as you leave. And we pray over those things each and every week as a prayer team and as a staff. We join with you in prayer. If you want to do something revolutionary regarding patience this week, consider, consider a couple of things. Turning off social media apps, maybe even turning off your phone for large portions of the day. There's a focus feature I know on my iPhone that if you hit that during a certain period of time, it will not disturb you at all. Maybe use that as a way to cultivate patience in your life. Revolutionary thought. I just thought I'd throw it out there. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.